0: Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Several decades ago, when I was a student at the University of Georgia, um, I got to go on a spring break trip to Italy. It was my first time ever being out of the country, Uh, being introduced to different cultures and places. And I remember it left an impression when we went to visit Rome. We went to visit Rome, and one of the things you do is you tour under the city, uh, the catacombs of Rome. These are these tunnels um, underneath the ancient city, and they're mainly filled with the tombs of some of the earliest Christians. Uh, Men and women who gave their life as martyrs, Uh, during times of official persecution in Rome, Um, it's inspiring, Um, it's humbling to be uh, amidst those tombs and think about the faithfulness that was required of these uh, men and women, even children at the time. Um, And what you'll notice if you tour these catacombs, and if you ever get a chance to go to Rome, go see them. Um, Honor the the witness of these early martyrs. Um, You'll see artwork um, all throughout the catacombs. And there's three, um, three pieces of art in particular that you'll see over many of the tombs. Um, they'll mark the graves of these earliest Christians. Uh, the first one is a dove. And you might know from the Gospels, the dove is a symbol of what? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of course. Uh, so you'll see that all through. And you can imagine um, how vivid their experience of the Holy Spirit must have been uh, to be faithful in uh, such a difficult time. Um, the second thing that you'll see throughout um, is a fish. And it, I, I remember going as a student and being like, oh, that's the thing on the back of all of our cars. Cool. Um, that symbol has been around for almost 2,000 years. Um, and the reason that the fish was used as a symbol is if you take the Greek word ichthus, it makes an acrostic. Um, and what it would actually kind of stand for in the acrostic is essentially Jesus Christ... Son of God, Savior. And so it would be a way that you could just draw a fish and go, hey, I'm part of this group that acknowledges uh, Jesus Christ as the Son of God uh, and of the Savior. And that, I think, is especially interesting because at the time, the the emperor of Rome uh, was known as the Son of God and was known as the Savior of the world, the one who brought peace and happiness to the world. And these early Christians said, no, it's Jesus Christ Christ that is the Son of God and our true Savior. So you see this the fish everywhere, and it's even endured um, until now. And then the third symbol that you'll see is an anchor, like a boat anchor. Um, and I bring that up. The anchor actually stood for an anchor of hope, uh, this thing that would tether uh, the Christians, that when storms raged, they would uh, not go too far. They would be held Um, and held by this anchor, and held firmly by this anchor, this anchor of hope. And I bring that up because this morning we are jumping into the middle of Romans chapter 8. This is one of the most incredible chapters um, in the entire New Testament. Um, And the section we're looking at is all about our future glory and inheritance as uh, those who are Christians. Um, You could almost draw an anchor over this section. It's an anchor of hope, and it's supposed to give us Uh, grounding when turbulence and suffering comes, um, and also tells us what we have to look forward to. And what you'll notice, and we'll talk about this, uh, Paul uses several different images and illustrations um, because he is trying to paint a picture of something so glorious words won't even wrap around it. Um, And so he's trying to just get a sense of what does it mean to live uh, in the midst of and through suffering, What does it mean uh, to have this tether, this anchor of hope when hard uh, things come so that we can be aware of the future glory um, that awaits us, that's more good and beautiful than anything we can hope or imagine? So we're going to walk through uh, this section. We're going to jump around in Romans 8 a little bit, and we'll be in Romans 8 again uh, next Sunday. There's way too much here to just hit it. Um, We could spend like a year on Romans 8 and probably not exhaust it. Uh, But the first thing we see here is a glory beyond compare, uh, this future glory. Um, We're in verse 18. Let me just kind of recap the first part of Romans 8, verses 1 through 17. It's all about Christ's love for us, uh, the saving work of God uh, in us, and and the glorious future we have as Christians. Um, And at our last service, our reader came up and actually read Romans 8, verse 1 before Uh, She got to our actual part, Um, and I I think that it's because you need to know Romans 8.1 as the header of all of the good news of Romans 8. Here's what Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, She read it, and it was not what we're supposed to read, and I was like, man, we need to hear that every day. We especially need to hear that as we gather for worship. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Paul will walk out. Here's why there is no condemnation. Uh, because of the work of Christ for us and for our salvation. We receive that as a gift of grace. Um, and it's astounding to think that anything that there would be against us, we cannot be condemned. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, What's interesting, if you look at Romans 8 and you think about uh, the work of salvation, uh, for Paul, there are several kind of time frames in mind. And so there's a lot of time that Paul will look back to the finished work of Jesus. And he'll look at, hey, here's what was accomplished with the death and resurrection of our Lord. Um, He'll sometimes even really tie that into the Old Testament. You read Romans, and it's just drenched with the story of God's people, the promise of the Old Testament wrapped around the person and work of Jesus and then the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, other times, Paul seems really focused on the present. Uh, here's our experience of the Holy Spirit. Um, here's what it's like to be incorporated into this mystical body, the church. Um, here's what it means to be under pressure and persecution and suffering. Here's what it means to even wrestle with our own sin. Um, that's what Romans said when we wrestle with our sin, Um, and yearn for God to work. And then other places, he is very future-oriented. And he wants them to know exactly what is in store, the the incredible things in store uh, for those who are Christians. Um, And it occurred to me that as we gather as a group, we have lots of different church backgrounds and traditions represented. Um, It's likely that you more naturally focus on one of those time frames. Um, You know, there's a lot of folks where you grow up, and it's very much future. Here's what God did, and praise God that he did. Others would say, man, here's what this means for my life right now. And then others will look ahead to what God will do for us. Um, I can tell you, the the tradition I was raised in, it kind of had the bookends. Um, It talked about, here's what God did for you and Jesus there's an invitation to uh, accept that and to follow the Lord so that when we die, we could go and be with Him. Um, and for me, at least in that experience, there was this kind of glaring omission in the middle of what does it mean to live faithfully now? What does it mean for God to be at work in my life? How do I think about um, vocation and mission and family and friends and neighbors and work? Like, what's, what's that mean for this? Um, but again, that's my experience. Um, I know others who are not as concerned with what God did or even what he will do. It's just about their present experience of the Lord. Um, That can be insufficient as well. Um, And what we see in Paul is that these are, of course, beautifully balanced. Um, He wants us to know the ins and outs of what God did for us, for our salvation, the great love poured out through Christ Jesus. He wants to know how we experience the living God here and now how we grow and follow him faithfully. And he wants us to know, hey, there's a whole other end of the story that is coming um, that isn't like an extra appendix, but it's vitally connected to your experience now and what God did in and through Jesus. There's an anchor of hope um, that we hold on to and that holds on to us um, in the Christian life. Um, And so I was just thinking, man, it's probably good to be aware of where your tendencies are there and maybe if there's been a tendency to overcorrect. So like I know in my tradition that I grew up in, it was, again, here's what God did, cut your deal, and then just hang out till you're in heaven. (laughs) Um, And I kind of said, well, there's this whole part in the middle about living and following Jesus, um, but we can overcorrect when we do that because absolutely there is a future glory and inheritance. And as you read through Romans, there's so much going on. Um, that we don't get you know, lost in the weeds. Um, we're not allowed to just kind of focus on our little pet thing of theology or how we experience There's a full gospel picture on display uh, from the Apostle Paul and even through uh, Romans chapter 8. Um, so I just want to maybe just signal that as we dig into this. We're going to talk about our future hope, our future glory, um, something that occasionally is kind of dangled like a carrot, but it's really good news. Um, And if you kind of heard it as a reductionistic, simplified version, um, man, maybe give it a hearing today again. Um, In most forms that are reductionistic of the gospel, there is a kernel of truth. It's just reduced. And so let's fill it out and look at the bigger picture. Um, Here's what Paul writes about our future. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing With the glory that is to be revealed in us. I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Um, It's interesting. The language here that Paul uses comes from the field of accounting. Um, This is not my sweet spot. I know we have some finance people here, or folks who are good at accounting. Uh, This word, for I consider, is what you would use when you actually reconcile your ledgers. And so Paul's saying, if you put the suffering of this world in one column, and you put the future glory that is to come in another column, they don't line up at all. It's almost apples and oranges. I don't even consider that these are comparable in any sense, Um, not because the suffering isn't bad, but because the glory is so good. He's not saying in this passage, notice this. He doesn't say your suffering now isn't real. He doesn't say that it's not hard and terrible. This is not a uh, suck it up, pretend it's okay, grit your teeth, get on with it message. He goes, no, just consider that as bad as things seem, how good must this be, the future glory that it does not even compare or get on the same ledger with suffering and pain and sin and hardship? Um, He wants to give us context To process our own suffering, the suffering of that around us, and endure faithfully. He's giving us the big picture to understand that at the end of the day, there is something greater in store for the people of God than suffering. Um, Doug Moo is a New Testament scholar. He's at Wheaton College, he's written on Romans. And uh, he says, suffering of both creation and of Christians um, is still present. But Paul isn't really interested in its relationship to glory as it is to its sequence. You and I are usually often going, hey, there's pain and suffering. How does that work with a good and beautiful God? What he's saying is that for Paul, pain and suffering are just assumed. That's the normal way of life. And it's against that backdrop that he goes, can you imagine the glorious future promised? It's sequential. He wants to put us on a timeline to see where we are and where we will be. Um, He goes on to say, Doug Moo, a Christian views the suffering of this life in a larger world-transcending context that while not alleviating its present intensity, transcends it with the confident expectation that suffering is not the final word. It's never the final word. That's what Paul wants them to know. Your suffering is not the final word. And of course, where does he get that? Well, from the pattern of Jesus' ministry, his cross and resurrection. Suffering never has the final word. Sin doesn't have the final word. Death doesn't have the final word. Jesus does. In another chapter, uh, another book in Philippians, uh, Paul writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You probably heard that verse, right? Um, I actually think it's probably one of the most uh, misunderstood verses in the entire New Testament because it's somehow become like a logo for FCA. (laughs) Like I I can remember back to high school and I played on the high school soccer team. And there was one match. We were down 3-0 at halftime. And someone stood up and was like, we can win this because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. (laughs) And I was like, no, man, they're a lot better than us. (laughs) We're going to lose this game. It's not going to happen. Um, that verse, what it really means is not this like can-do attitude. That can-do is really endure. I mean, the book of Philippians, Paul writes from prison. Um, he invites people to share in the fellowship of suffering with Jesus. He's saying, I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. There is an anchor of hope that even in the midst of suffering, we know the future glory that awaits, and we know that God is with us in the midst of the hardship and the pain and the suffering. Um, Later in Romans 8, he writes, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Imagine you receive that word. I mentioned that the Roman catacombs are filled with the earliest Christians who underwent suffering and persecution and hardship faithfully. Paul says what you need to know and you need to be assured of is there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus and there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. That will tether you, knowing who you are now and the promised inheritance of what is to come. And of course, Paul's not just making that up. He's living this out in front of them. And he knows that neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God because he follows the one who was crucified and then raised from the dead. And so neither death nor life can separate him from the love of God. This is not theoretical for the Apostle Paul. It's not uh, wishful thinking is patterned after the ministry of Jesus and his experience of the risen Lord. And then he gets into this really interesting stuff here in verse 19. Um, this is, uh, he starts to talk about creation. Um, and when we think about creation, what do we think? God created all things, um, and it was good. The pinnacle of creation is male and female made in the image of God. And he told them to multiply and to subdue the earth. Uh, but here, Paul's talking about the non-human creation. Um, and he, it's, it's fun what he does with it. He says, For the creation um, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Um, that creation itself is waiting eagerly uh, for God to execute his final great and glorious plan. When we're adopted as sons and daughters of God, or the way we put it in the creed, is we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And Paul would say that all of God's good non-human creation is waiting for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. It says the creation waits with eager longing. Um, It's this great little wordplay that Paul does. Um, (laughs) The waits with eager longing is is a compound of, of head and stretch. The idea being that creation is like on tiptoe Looking, craning, trying to see when will this happen. Um, I thought it was a, a few weeks ago I was on vacation, and so when I'm on vacation, we usually visit other Anglican churches um, and uh, I was at one with my daughter Zoe, who's 10, um, a church down in the Shambly area, and it was the first time my daughter had ever seen lyrics projected onto a screen, um, which was just interesting that she had never seen that before. I, I was actually kind of. Yeah, that was, that was a, a moment. But afterwards, like, hey, what did you think about that? Because she's like curving around and trying to see and trying to sing. And she goes, well, you know, honestly, there were kind of some tall guys, and I, I just saw their butts. <laughs> Do they know about a bulletin <laughs> where I could hold it and sing? Um, but she was doing this. She was, you know, a little kid trying to see eager to look around and crane and stretch her neck. Um, Paul says that's what creation's doing. Waiting, straining. Is it time? When is this going to happen? Are we there yet? The resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Um, That's what's happening here as the creation is waiting for the unveiling, the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the kingdom to come uh, in its fullness. For this time we heard about in the parable where the wheat and the tares no longer grow together, but the harvest comes, and God's good plan is finally seen in all of its full glory and beauty. There's this idea that even non-human creation is going, are we there yet? Is it time? There's so much focused on time here. And so the next few verses, you get kind of an environmental exodus. He thinks He's just playing with this idea of non-human uh, creation. Um, and I love that, because creation is beautiful. And, and it tells of the glory of God. We can learn a lot about God just looking at the example of creation. Um, and it occurred to me that when I was really young in the church, um, my view of Christianity was small enough to just me and God. And again, that's, there's good in that, and there's true in that. Um, I got a little older and expanded to, oh, there's this dimension of we're being saved together as the church. And that's good and that's right. Paul would say, hey, do you realize it's not even just humans? It's not even just the church. All of God's good creation will be transformed and redeemed and renewed, set free from its bondage. its exodus language. The creation has been enslaved, subjected to futility. And it's going, hey, can we, get, can we undo this? Can we get rid of the effects of sin and death? How many of you enjoyed the storms this week? I mean, creation is subjected to futility. Our homes were subjected uh, to rain and limbs and trees and no power. And we learned just how precious air conditioning uh, is and was. I think there's going to be air conditioning in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, Just seems like that has to be part of what happens. Um, And Paul doesn't just pull this out of no. This is not like, I mean, Paul's not just this like tree-hugging hippie which again, Athens, we like tree-hugging hippies. That's fine. Um, But he's got this broader view of the beauty of creation and the hope for creation that's rooted in the Old Testament. Uh, We read last week from Isaiah 55, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up, the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Creation will be restored and renewed and transformed to what it was supposed to be. And all of its goodness and beauty. I just love that you get this picture here. Um, It's not just me and God, as great as that is. It's not just us as the church, as great as that is. It's all of God's creation renewed and redeemed and set free and transformed the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Paul's just bringing together this incredible strand from the Old Testament. He's undoing all that sin and death brought into the world and showing um, the timeline of what God is up to. And you can imagine what a comfort that would be if you're in the midst of hardship and difficulty, pain and suffering Paul is saying, can you imagine this bigger story that God is writing, and you're rolling it? Because here's where this is all going. Um, and then he starts using these different images, again, for uh, creation and what's happening. Um, one, again, I mentioned creation standing on tiptoe, craning its neck. Um, the other one he brings up, and I've got a, this is verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Let me sit here for just a second. What's he doing with this image of the pains of childbirth? Um, One, I can remember, I was part of the Wesley Foundation when I was in college here, and I think I only remember one sermon uh, from all the Wesley Foundation, but Bob Beckwith, who's still there, um, spent about 18 minutes but um, Bob's a scientist. He, he outlined the full process and picture of childbirth in a way that I will never forget. Um, <laughs> it probably was some good information that came in handy later when I was in labor and delivery rooms. Um, but we learned a lot about pain and suffering and waiting and process um, with his 18-minute unpacking of uh, all that you can imagine. It was unreal. But what's Paul doing there? Why does he bring up childbirth? Here's my thought, is uh, twofold. One is that he brings up um, something that we see is kind of subjected to futility. But there is not, it's not purposeless pain. It's a process, and it, it's hard, and it's intense, but it doesn't last forever. And after labor comes delivery, and you have a child. And it doesn't mean that that pain wasn't painful, but you can see that it was purposeful, and you can see that there was a sequence to go through, and there was a payoff more or less at the end. Um, there was a point to it, and I think that's why Paul uses this idea: is that there's a groaning and waiting like childbirth, and it's intense and it's painful. But it doesn't last forever. And once you see what comes after, you don't forget it, but it makes it worth it. It puts it in context. He wants us to think through the resurrection of the dead, the life of the world to come. You're going to look back, and that'll feel like labor pains. And they hurt, but they lead to the child. They lead to the promise. They lead to future glory. Um, He says that's where we are right now, but it's not where we'll stay. Um, throughout this, he's sequential. And and that's what makes sense about labor. First labor, then the baby. Or Paul would say, first suffering, then the glory. There's this time sequence. As we wait and groan, we long for the glory that is to come. And then Paul goes ahead in verse 23, um, and he switches back to, okay, let's talk about what this means for us. He's building through this whole thing. Um, Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Groaning and waiting is a good and natural response to the hard things of this life. But we groan and we wait with expectation of God's plan for us this future glory, the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. What he calls here, as we wait eagerly for adoption and the redemption of our bodies. And then he just moves into this section to go, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I like that because he's like, look, I know some of this is hard to get your head around. You can't see it. It's not, it's not as tangible as we would like. I've got to use these images and metaphors, but hang in there. Have this anchor of hope uh, to rely on and find how it sustains you and helps you endure um, the hard things of this life. Friends, you probably know the Christian life is filled with tension. The gospel seems filled with tension. I I often use um, this quote from uh, Tim Keller, and I actually heard recently on a podcast, he may have gotten this from someone else, but it's his like, best-known quote. You are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. That's often how tension works. How do we hold these two things together? How do we hold it, um, our sinfulness and God's great love for us? How do we think through the, the goodness and beauty of God and the pain and suffering we see around us um, I want to just submit that maybe if you're used to kind of seeing that as like a tug-of-war, um, Paul actually puts it on a completely different axis. And he says, all of the tensions you think about are on a timeline. First the suffering, then the glory. It's not like these are going to always have this tug-of-war between the suffering we experience. He goes, no, no, this is on a timeline. And it follows the same timeline and pattern of our Lord, who underwent suffering for us. Um, Suffering we could have never actually gone through. And he did it for us and for our salvation. And then came his glory, and then will come uh, the greater glory. Because if you can locate yourself in that story on that timeline, then you'll have the resources to undergo suffering and hardship. You'll have the resources to fight against the sin that so easily besets us. You'll have the resources to figure out what is God calling you into? What's your vocation? What's your mission? How do you join the Lord and what he's up to in the world? And then in some ways be free to lean into that stuff, but to know uh, in the end, God is going to do something decisive to transform and renew and redeem uh, all things, the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come. May we be reminded once again today of God's great love for us. May we be reminded of this story and our place in it so that we can uh, not do all things in a can-do sense, but endure all things faithfully, um, knowing that the Lord is working all things uh, for our good and delighting in Christ who gives us strength. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.